brought to you by the Game Reviews and the Unified Gamers Network. You're listening to Big Red Potion Cop Mode. I am joined today, hopefully, third time lucky, by <laughs> Joe D'Elia in a car in some... Where, where exactly is your car? Piscataway, New Jersey, in a parking lot of my office building, uh, right by the window where all of my co-workers are currently working. Brilliant. Are they all watching you and thinking, that guy's kind of crazy? That's the best thing. It's actually a one-way window, so I can't see in, but they can see out. <laughs> and I'm staring at the blackness of the window, wondering who is on the other end looking at me. It's kind of we, We've spent about 10 minutes of our available mm. time trying to get this going. I think you've been nearly arrested over that course period, <laughs> and uh, we've lost you like five times over conversation, and mm. really we should just get going, quite frankly, because we're running out of time. But uh, mm. dedication to the cause, right? Dedication, hardcore, always. Brilliant. Uh, joining us today for this cart mode, first ever guest on a cart mode, is another person who's actually been on the show recording from a car. Not today, but he, he has done it in the past. <laughs> it is Gamer Node director Eddie Inzato. Hey, hey. I am having so much fun already. <laughs> Are you impressed by our professionalism? Yes, yes, very much so. Is this the kind of heights that, that, that the uh, Versus No podcast can only hope to reach in terms of professionalism. Yes, we aspire to be everything that car podcasting could ever be. Well, the reason why we've got Eddie on is, well, you probably know the reason why we've got Eddie on. If you listen to our previous podcast we released a couple of days ago, because, uh, well, we were intending to get Eddie on that show. Unfortunately, something came up for Eddie that day. And uh, in the end, we ended up having four people on the show kind of I don't know whether the word hating is actually harsh enough to describe what we were talking what we were like when we talked about uh, heavy rain. So we're going to we're going to cover heavy rain later in the show and Eddie's going to provide uh, I think not just a defense but a, a glowing reference for it because uh, you're a big fan of the game, aren't you, sir? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're going to try and provide some balance later on in the show. Before that, we're going to see try and talk about as many games as possible in the time we have today. Uh, Joe's got to got to get back to work, so we'll see what we can do. And I think the best thing to do, Joe, is to start with you and talk about mm. one of the games you played in Q1. So uh, which game are you going to talk about for us sir, on this uh, card mode? Well, it's kind of scary. I spent most of Q1 catching up because there were so many damn great games last year um, that I just got, a, you know, just got around to playing. But uh, the one I want to talk about today in particular is one that Sir Eddie liked a lot more than me. And I wanted to kind of pick his brain and see exactly why uh, he liked it so much. I played Dante's Inferno about uh, two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, that game's gotten a lot of bad press for all the stupid PR things they've done with it and for the fact that basically it's God of War um, with no qualms or any types of changes or anything. And I played it kind of with an open mind because, you know what, I kind of like God of War and I didn't really mind uh, I didn't really mind all the stupid bad press that it had gotten. But if there was ever an example of a game that just didn't try, it would be Dante's Inferno. I mean, every single... Everything, even from like the the smallest things, like when you push a certain combination of buttons together, it produces the same combo that it would in God of War. And when you have a crate that you have to push, because there are crate puzzles just like God of War, when you have to push a crate, you can kick it just like Kratos could and produce exactly the same result. You climb walls a lot in, in Dante's Inferno, just like you do in God of War, and you have the same moves when on those walls that Kratos does. I mean, it's just the most... Since Simpsons Road Rage... This is the most blatant example of a ripoff of another game that I've ever seen. And unfortunately for Dante's Inferno, it also happened to go on about six hours too long. So there was really nothing worth playing in that game. So Eddie, I was wondering, why did you like that one? 
Well, first of all, I love how you slipped in a Crazy Taxi reference right there. That was excellent. To. That was excellent. <laughs> um, but secondly, uh, God of War isn't really a bad thing to rip off, though. Like, just because it's not an original game doesn't mean that it's necessarily horrible. I mean, it isn't original work, maybe, but um, it was it was all right to play. Um, and I thought that they did a good job with a lot of this, well, a few of the circles of hell. Um, <clears throat> like with Lust and um, Gluttony in particular, I think that they created a really interesting um, world, or, or whatever you call it, <laughs> um, an interesting hell. Um, I like the way that the environments sort of took the shape of these uh these sins i guess like the gluttony one mm. you would you were basically walking through a what, like one long digestive system and all of the enemies took on the forms of of gluttony you know like with mouths all over the place and they were like putrid and disgusting and then in lust you had all the weird naked demons and stuff like that and I mean the the combat system worked I mean essentially the same as God of War and that works fine for everyone else in the world I mean God of War is endlessly praised and if this is basically the same thing then how could it be that terrible so as, as someone who's not played the game I have, I have a couple of questions um, so the first one is you know it's, it's based on uh, on Dante I'm going to get his name wrong. Alighieri, uh, his his poem, the Divine Comedy, and you know, gr great piece of uh, literature. Um, does the game get anywhere close to us? You know, aspiring to, to to reaching that that kind of artistic level, or is it just you know that's it's taken loosely from this, and basically it could have been taken from anything, and really it is just this God of War clone with not much intelligence to it. I'd say I, I don't know anything loose. about the game, honestly. Sorry. <laughs> I'd say it's pretty loose. It just kind of takes the names of the circles of hell and then makes stuff happen inside of them. I mean, so I find a problem then. Why, 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 why do you think they used that as a as an inspiration? Because it just seems cheap to me. Um, probably a good way to put together a variety of different video game levels in sequence. Mm. I mean, yeah, but they they it was so. I don't know. Couldn't it couldn't have just been a little bit different and not be related to the poem? Because it just seems it seems like a very a very cheap way of uh, tying in your game to something. To be, to be totally honest with you, I was kind of intrigued by the idea of going through the nine circles of hell, just because I thought that a really smart team, which the Dead Space team, based on the two Dead Space games, definitely is. I thought that a really smart team could do some really cool things with that. I mean, well, yeah, hell has no limits. I mean, you could do some really cool environments. You could, there's pretty much no limit on what you could do down there. And uh, the way I thought, like Eddie did describe two of the two or three of the more interesting uh, circles of hell, but the other six were pretty much just, hey, climb this wall, and then climb this other wall, and then do this swinging scene, and then kill sixteen of these demons that all look the same, and then move on to the next wall that you have to climb. And uh, there were some interesting examples in there, but, you know, for every lust, which was very well defined, it had 
creatures shooting monsters out of their hoo-hahs and stuff like that. Of course, that's something you would expect to see there. But, you know, there was also stuff like, I think the greed level was basically just a dark cave with nothing really special to define it. Um, and there's a couple, I forget which, which level it was, but there was one basically that begins with this giant boss fight, which is pretty cool. And then the next 45 minutes is you walking through mundane caves and, and, you know, bloody alleyways looking for demons to kill. And I, I felt that they wasted not only a cool environment, but they also wasted what could have been a decent God of War clone on this, this repetitive, unspecial, non-clever, you know, stupid tie-in into this poem that... Not many people who would play this game probably have any interest in. I would speculate that the team was aiming to get the game released before God of War 3, um, to be honest. Like, when you consider the final levels and how it's a series of arena fights in the exact same room, yeah. um, that just felt really, I think you said lazy before, that was, mm. that was really not, not so much fun. The last hour and a half is basically horde mode, um, in the most uninteresting way ever presented in a game. Has there been any news on the on the sales? Then has it has that tactic worked for them? I think the fact that they immediately announced how well Mass Effect did and didn't say a single word about how Dante's Inferno did probably says more than anything. All right, so this is another new IP from EA, which is going to have tanked. Seems like it, yeah. Okay, so my second question was because you know you mentioned all the controversy that this game has gone through, you know, the, the whole, uh, was it E3 trying to uh, pick up a girl to, what is it, the whole lust thing? Uh, I think it was PAX. A PAX, it I was open to the public, yeah. PAX, the whole idea of, of getting uh, a photo of you doing something, this uh, something, I don't know what the word is, sorted, I guess, with a with a, with a a girl, one of the booth babes, mm. and uh, sending, that got so much controversy, and there's been other things, you know, they they did that thing at E3, I can't remember exactly which, but there's been a number of things. Does the game have the same kind of controversy, or is it just, you know, all, all bark, no bite? I tell you what, if you want to see boobs in a game, it's literally every wall, every, there's not a single clothed female in the entire thing. Like, I think that's the kind of level of maturity that the that the whole bite is in Dante's Inferno. It's very much like, hey, you know what? The people that want to play this game, they probably like boobs, so we're going to put them all in there. And that there's, you know, we're going to rip things. Up. Like, God of War is very gratuitous in those ways, too. But I think, as stupid as this sounds, God of War is a little bit classier about it. Wow. Even though there are sex mini-games, and, you know, you can rip demons' eyes out and throw them on the floor and step on them, uh, I think that... Dante's Inferno does it in a far more crass way that is not as clever nor as interesting as God of War. So basically, it's not controversial, it's just as puerile as all these. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a, again, like I said before, I don't understand how Visceral Games, you know, the Dead Space guys were, were involved with this because I think Dead Space took a formula from another game, Resident Evil 4, Dead Space case, uh, and House of the Dead even in, in Extraction's case, they took that formula and they twisted it enough so that it felt like a new thing. It felt clever and it felt fun. And to me, anyway, I didn't think that Dante's Inferno was any of that because it just really felt like I was playing a bad God of War, you know, semi-sequel. Whereas, mm -hmm. Eddie, you, you saw it as something that was as, as good as, well... Technically, <laughs> as good as God of War, but well, I wouldn't go that far. Okay, but I mean, <laughs> it was it was all right. One thing I will say though, so we're not just continuously bashing this game, is that um, they may not have followed through completely with it, but the game does try to 
raise some questions about what it is to be good versus evil, uh, especially in following um, leaders faithfully, I guess I could say, because uh, this guy is a crusader, and it ends up that what he believed when he was, you know, up on Earth it was not exactly true um, in reality. You know, he, he right. thought he was doing good, but it, through his journey, he, like, was shown how he could be doing just as much evil, even though he's, um, in his mind, doing good. But it really wasn't taken very far or, or deep, you know? I think all of that was... I, I, I respected that, and I watched the anime that they released along with it, which was really bad, by the way. <laughs> but, um... The, uh, I respect that they, they did try that, but I think that the way they told those flashbacks, which was basically that Dante had sewn a tattoo on himself that depicted all of the events in his life, and that's basically how they told the backstory, by zooming in on these tattoos and showing these little animated sequences. And not only the animated sequences kind of pull me out of it because they stylistically looked nothing like the rest of the game and kind of didn't fit in. But they also, as Eddie said, they, they grazed the surface so lightly that I didn't even notice half of it during the game. And it, as Eddie said, it was a wasted opportunity. Yeah, it was like you could you could easily just overlook all of those and sort of forget that they ever happened. Hmm. So one, one last thing before we move on to the next game. Um, do you think all, all that negative press it did get because of all this controversy, do you think, because for me, this game's kind of passed me by. It's, and I, I think it's a combination of a very heavy Q1, and the fact that kind of the press have been looking down on this game because the way it's, it's been handled PR-wise. Do you, do you guys agree with that? Yeah, it seemed like before the game ever came out, people had already written it off. You know, in between Bayonetta and Darksiders and God of War 3 itself, you know. A lot of similar games, yeah. Yeah. Mm. This was mm. like I don't think I think a lot of people wrote it off a lot because of the story, the way that they were adapting the poem. I don't necessarily think that's horrible because if you think about it, God of War kind of does a sort of similar thing with Greek mythology. But I think the PR definitely didn't help and also the fact that when everyone saw it at these press events they realized, hey, they really didn't add anything to this to make it, you know, stand out from God of War three. And that's the real problem with Dante's Inferno is that it didn't come out two, three years ago where it probably would have been fairly well received. It came out a month before God of War 3, which means that there's really no purpose for it to exist. Yeah, uh, and, God of and War... like Ed... Oh, sorry, you go. Because God of War 3 really aims to take this type of game to all new heights, whereas this one kind of uh, sits on the old formula a little bit more. Mm. And I think in terms of the, the tone of it as well, you've just had Bayonetta a month before, which we'll get into uh, in this cast. I think... And if it aims for that sort of immature but kind of classly immature uh, tone better than than this, by the sounds of it that this game does, uh, but I'm pretty sure Eddie disagrees with me on that. So uh, we'll, we'll get in. Should we get into that now? Should we get into Bayonetta? Yeah, let's talk about that. Bayonetta, and then you played it uh, a while back. Eddie played it as well. I have not yet played it, but uh, you liked it quite a bit, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I liked. It? I, I'm I'm surprised by how much I liked it. I mean, don't get me wrong. <laughs> They they do go quite far with the Bayonetta character in terms of sexualization. I mean, mm. there are certain shots, particularly in the cutscenes, particularly uh, in those sequences where she unleashes her 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 ultimate power and all her 
you know, because the whole shtick is that her clothes are is her hair. So whenever she does her ultimate move, I mean, this has been something that's been publicised so much before the game. All her hair goes off into a whirlwind, and, and there's just threads of it left over her over her breasts and over her downstairs. And it's just, you know, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty controversial. It's pretty sexualised, but. You know, there's kind of two sides to it. Some people feel like it, it's over overdone, that it's 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 tacky, it's playing to the lowest common denominator. I think, yeah, but at the same time, it's not unabashed about that. It, it's not ashamed of how far it's going. At least, you know, at least it has the decency to go full blown of it and not pretend Tomb Raider to be anything else. <laughs> you know, at least it understands what it is, and it's never it's never trying to speak about the human condition or. Uh, be anything cleverer than what it is. It's just a silly, crazy, funny, over-the-top game. And uh, regards the actual combat, I think you know. Okay, it's it's not. Maybe it doesn't have the complexity of Devil May Cry, but it, I don't think it was ever again a, attaining that. It was looking to just kind of provide a, a lighter version of that and more focus on kind of the scenarios you get into. And I think it really does beat Devil May Cry for the, the how ludicrous some of the situations you are. You know, at one point you're, you're surfing against it into the tide against this huge sea monster and kind of back. It's just crazy. And it gets, it gets the, it, it kind of nails the scale of, of, of things a bit better than Devil May Cry, because I feel like Devil May Cry, you get, you know, these huge monsters, but you always feel very, much like you're beating small parts of those those huge monsters when you're fighting them. Whereas right. with Bayonetta, I always felt like I I am David and this is Goliath, and I really had to to work hard to beat these huge monsters, and I, I really appreciate that. I think for me, it it was it didn't really have anything to criticize except that maybe it did push the boat a bit too far with some of its sexualization sexualization at times. But I, I, I know Eddie disagrees. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think a lot of what Bayonetta is is just unappealing to me. I mean, yeah, the the character and the way everything is presented is so over the top that I can't be offended by it. It's almost laughable. But like, well, I that, think that's what they were going for. Then. Yeah, yeah. Do you not think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fine, but. For me, it was more about the gameplay itself was just not enough to really keep me interested. It felt like a lot of just, I don't know, combo mashing. You know, they gave you all these lists of buttons to tap in sequence to make her do things, and it it felt very much the same. I didn't play through much, like, through very much of the game. I um, kind of became fatigued with it and moved on. I, I thought that the dodge mechanic was good enough, was challenging enough, especially in the normal mode, to sustain the fact that a lot of the rest of it was combat heavy. Because really, it's not just about pulling off those combos; it's about knowing when to stop with certain, knowing knowing how far with a certain combo you can go. Whether you've got time to put in a, a three-button combo or a five-button combo or whatever, and uh, knowing, getting an understanding of what weapons. Uh, provide what combos and and when's the best one time to use them and and I think as well that the RPG element of it is a bit is actually a little bit better than Devil May Cry did it. There's there's kind of more you have to put more thought into your decisions at the store rather than just going oh I'll get this one I'll get that one mm -hmm. like there's that there's certain purchases you should be making and certain purchases you should leave till later 
which I, I appreciated. But I do get your point. Like, there could have been maybe a bit more in, uh, involvement of maybe the the style, the uh, the analog sticks uh, with certain combos, and maybe more than two buttons. We you know Devil May Cry tries to use tries to use all four face buttons in its combinations, and and the whole jumping juggling as well. But for me, I sometimes find Devil May Cry a bit overwhelming. So I, I kind of appreciated that this was, in some ways, quite simplified. Mm -hmm. See, for me, it had a lot to do with um, the the visual differences between the combos on screen. Like, I could be doing one combo and then do another combo and not even tell the difference between what I just did. Whereas in some other games, maybe it's very clear that um, certain combinations do different types of damage. You know, you attack from different angles. Um, maybe one attack is heavy and slow, with another one being quicker and uh, lighter, or whatever. Um, so I don't. It just it didn't click with me like uh, okay. maybe some other games did. I think that's actually a fair criticism. I can I can get on board on that. Like a lot of them are kind of visually visually similar. I think. It again appealed to me because of the timing, like I was saying, of, of the combos, like the, the, especially the kind of the staccato combos, where you've got to press three buttons and then one button quickly, or you've got to wait a bit for for one button. And I thought that was, it was challenging and it was it was fun for me. Um, but there you go. I mean, Joe, are you are you interested at all in getting this game? You know, uh, after going to E3 last year, I played a lot of stuff, and that was the one that stood out the most to me. That was the game that if I could have gotten one game at that point, I would have picked that over pretty much anything else. And I haven't quite bought it yet because I've been working my way through my backlog, but literally the second I'm going to go out and buy a game, it's going to be Bayonetta. I can't... It, I like, you know, I like controlled ridiculousness when it's done well and when it's clever. Like, Dante's Inferno had a, a certain amount of just ridiculousness but it, it didn't click with me right. I think Bayonetta is exactly um, what I'm looking for plus I heard there's quite a bit of Sega in there oh yeah there's Sega, a, lot of, rather. a lot of Sega references especially with the, with the store guy the, the, not a Sega reference but the best moment is when he does his uh, an impression of the store owner from uh, the, the, the guy the merchant from Resident Evil 4 yeah. he goes what are you buying and I just I, I hadn't heard any of that stuff about the references and I was like oh my god Resident Evil 4 so, <laughs> I, that, was, that was great for me the one question I wanted to ask you guys, like, what, why do you think there has been such a negative reaction to Bayonetta because of a character? Because I think, for me, my personal view is about it is that, like, we shouldn't be overly critical about sexualization in games. I think the problem for me is that there's just not a, a male equivalent of her in in the gaming industry. Like, and whereas you can like, say in TV, like, for for every kind of sort of sexy voyeuristic show there is on on women, there's Sex in the City, which is kind of like in, on a on a shamedly uh, objectifying of men, and you know you can look to film as well, a lot of a lot of art forms. Whereas with gaming, we just don't have this sexual male character to 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 objectify. I think you're right. I think people people are burnt out on that image of the the sexy you know lead female half naked from a video game. I mean, there's been dozens, if not thousands of examples over the past couple of years that I don't like Bayonetta just seems like the next X-Blades if you don't really look too far right. into it and that's the problem you know there really is no male equivalent to that I think it's sort of a, a superficial look at the character because at first I I actually went in thinking that I hated this character and when I played the game I was like oh she's not so bad um, and I think maybe I hadn't read a whole lot of uh, 
negative response, like legitimate negative response to it. It may just be like the popular thing to say, like, oh, yeah. Bayonetta is so over-sexualized and that's bad. So I, I think that the fact that there's a kind of a dominatrix quality to her it means mean, that she's not the same as x Blade's girl. Exactly. She's mm. like sort of a, a stronger character, and not sort of, but a, a much stronger character as a woman, I'd say. I mean, even though I mean, it, she she is sort of um, an exhibitionist, it's on her own terms. It seems. Oh, absolutely. She's teasing the player throughout the whole thing. Yeah. All, it's all. It's, it, it, whereas you know the whole exploits Lara Croft, it feels. It does feel voyeuristic to me. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you're like a creep when you're playing yeah, exactly. those games. <laughs> like in the last Underworld game, whenever she did her flip, I was just thinking, <clears> Oh god, yeah, right. I'm kind of done with this now. <laughs> it was. It What's was the bad. thing? Bayonet actually has a character as opposed to the bodies with you know, hollow shells that walk around in most other games. That's the kind of thing that I guess people are getting attached to. Whereas, you know, in the press, it didn't, you didn't really see that. You just saw the, the body getting flaunted in every possible way. Yeah. So now that people have actually played it, they kind of like her. The, the last plus I'm going to say about Bayonetta before we move on, I really liked how it used um, fr the the old Frank Sinatra. I don't know if it's his, oh, his, his original. Fly Me to the Moon, it did this brilliant remix of it, and it, it had remixes of that remix, so, you know, it had a faster version, a slower version, and it was just throughout the whole game, and it was like this this flashback to older games reusing music over and over and over, because mm. it was really all over the game, and yet, I've heard some people say it's, it got annoying, for me, I was like, every time I heard it, brilliant, fantastic, wonderful song, and uh, I, I'm not going to be able to hear Fly Me to the Moon without thinking of Bayonetta, which uh, I think is, you know, well done, mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> One thing about the music, though, is aside from the Fly Me to the Moon remix, I felt like the overall soundtrack was... It, it sort of clashed with what I was looking at on the screen all the time. And at didn't, times, yeah. And it didn't seem to carry the same weight a, as these huge conflicts that I was having. Because a lot of the things that were going on on screen were ridiculously epic, and here I'm listening to like do do boop do do ba ba you know. Yeah. So it it kind of was um, I don't know. It took me out of it a little. Maybe for me it was it was like that nice contrast to Devil May Cry, which is all just you know crazy heavy metal. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like yeah, this is a bit lighter, and I, I can I can appreciate it. That. that kind of stuff's worked before. I mean, anyone who's played Marvel vs. Capcom 2 knows that some jazzy music can fit these epic fights pretty well if you get used to it. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, should we move on to another game? Yes, sure. let's do it. Uh, Eddie, should, should we go to you for your first game? Yeah, let's uh, stick with the trend. I played Darksiders, um, <laughs> which is basically, I don't know, the legend of war. <laughs> it's God <laughs> of War and, and Zelda um, put together. Which, I mean, I have to say, is not a bad idea. Uh, again, God of War is a great thing to steal from blatantly, and Zelda's a great thing to steal from blatantly. <laughs> and, I mean, they even took some Portal and threw it in there. Um, so, to me, this was like a, a more mature-themed Zelda game with better combat, but maybe not as good level design and a little bit more repetition than uh, I would have preferred. Joe, Joe, you like me, have you played? Have you not played this yet? No, I haven't, but uh, it was one of those things where I've been hearing so much about that game on podcasts and from people I've been talking to that I, I mean, I'm not the biggest Zelda fan in the world, yet I, I really can't wait to pick this game up because it sounds pretty cool. I mean, I've been, I've been really intrigued by all the chatter of whether this is a very inspired title or a very derivative title because I think that's a fascinating 
discussion. Obviously, you're on the on the side of inspired, Eddie. Yeah, I'm I'm more pro about this game than uh, than against it. You know, I think that they they did a lot to expand upon the the source material that they blatantly ripped off. And I'll just keep saying that. <laughs> like you even you even have Mark Hamill in a little floating demon guy who lives in your wristband who comes out and tells you things about the world or whatever. And I feel like he should be saying, Hey, listen you know. <laughs> um so just all the surreal thoughts of Mark Hamill as as your fairy accompanier in Zelda, that would be Yeah, he's be great though. Weird. Like a, a bunch of the voice actors are really good. Um some are not so good though. <laughs> right. What 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 do you think it is that def- that separates something from being derivative, something being inspired? Is it just as simple as a game being good or bad? Because that's what I've heard some people postulate, and I kind of think, as much as I, I I think you could get deeper into this discussion, I I kind of find myself thinking maybe it does come down to whether you do a good job or you do a bad job with it. Um, yeah, I think. Jeez, that's a good question. Inspired versus derivative. Well, I think it comes down to what I said about using what they learned from these other games and building upon it. Like here, they're not doing what Dante's Inferno did. They are combining the elements of a variety of things into a more cohesive final product um, that that works very well, I think. Like, you have solid combat and, um, you know, the progression of learning techniques and everything and ever-expanding the way that you uh, take down your enemies. And then you also have these dungeons with puzzles, you know, maybe not super in-depth puzzles, but there are a variety of items you use to do things in different ways to move forward. And I mean, like, it's it's funny. Like, you get a boomerang and you get a hook shot. Um, but they do. It does do some things uh, that are unique. No, I'm sorry. I was gonna say, Sinan, you uh, you've been playing. Uh, you played a game that kind of a lot of people worried was gonna get pretty slapped together. But you were pleasantly surprised with the outcome, right? I think you're talking about Bioshock too. That is what I'm talking about, sir. Okay, because it's this is a kind of interesting thing we've got going on on inspiration and taking from previous games or other games and, and things like that. Mm. Bioshock Two is the ultimate playing it safe video game. Uh, <laughs> it, and I think you know what? At the end of the day, that was probably the most sensible decision that 2K could have taken with Bioshock because right. the the first game is standalone in many ways. It's standalone in terms of its plot, in terms of what you, you the actual experience that you 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 have in that place you know rapture is a very much a a first uh impressions place you know it's all about entering that world entering that city uh going from each of these different areas and um you know to to try and build upon that is risky um Hmm. so really what what they did with this game was just to accept you know what frankly people want to go back to rapture they don't they don't want to be too different they don't want they don't really want the story from the previous game to be affected too much. So uh, I think what you end up with is is a, a very safe experience. You end up with a game that that has a story, but it's 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 like it, it it's not really linked to the previous game story in any way, shape, or form. 
it's more to do with with the the, the place and the kind of the themes or in in many ways it's kind of contrasting to the themes of the game but it's that same kind of idea of of uh, uh, kind of power and and uh, the the values inherent to, to making society work uh, you know it, it's about maybe a different approach to that in, in the in the new character um, in Lamb's approach as opposed to Andrew Ryan's from the previous game um, mm. the gameplay is very very similar there's there's not really for me, a lot of people said that they they done they improved upon the uh, the plasmids and the the weapons from the previous game, and like they're, mm. they're there, but it, it all for me felt very similar. Uh, and yeah, I'm I'm I was quite happy with that, to be frank. You know, I, I was I was excited to go back to Rapture. It was obviously never going to be as exciting as it was the first time, but it, I really had a a good time exploring that city. You know, in, uncovering some of its new history because it's set 10 years after the first game um, and, and learning about these characters which are, okay admittedly aren't as good as the characters from the first game but they probably were never going to be that those right. those characters from the first game were some of the best characters we've seen in video games for, for some time um, so overall like I think the real positive message to take from Bioshock 2 for me was that if you played the first game you should play the second game um, but ultimately we're not going to be talking about Bioshock 2 in a few years time we'll be only talking about Bioshock I think Bioshock 2 is a perfect example of a game that is derivative, but still good. <laughs> Just to go back to what Joe asked before, right? I mean, it, it's yeah. pretty much derivative, but still okay. Absolutely. Mm. That, that, it, 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 is the, it is very much... It's a very cruel phrase to say, but if you're going to say about any game, it is Bioshock 1.5. You know, it really right. is. Now, I may not necessarily say that if you played Bioshock you should play Bioshock 2 I would say that Bioshock 2 is not I don't know I wouldn't say it's necessary I would be happy to have had the Bioshock story and that's all and I would have liked to see them take a little bit more risk with the IP than what they did um, I felt like they basically just they did a a an Assassin's Creed one, I think, um, with the way the game was put together. Basically, you go to each of these levels that are completely disconnected, and you go from one to the next and can never go back. Um, right. You do the same things. You know, it's like sister, 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 big sister, leave, uh, and then you make it to the end. And for me, the thing that kept me going. Um, mostly, was had nothing to do with the actual gameplay, really. It had to do with finding the radio recordings and looking at the different pieces of writing and old advertising on the wall. Well, I, I, actually, I, yeah. I think that's a little bit unfair to say that's not gameplay. I think that that, that you're just saying because it's not combat, because it's not action, it's not gameplay. Like I, I still think exploring a world can be gameplay can be to, to, you know you, that, that there's parts of play yeah. to explore yeah well gameplay is a terrible word to begin with right. so I probably should have I, I, said I, something I don't mean different. to pick, I, I'm not trying to necessarily pick on that word what I'm trying to say is I think if, even if that is the only thing you're getting out of the experience and I think in many ways that is very much the, the primary thing to get from Bioshock 2 is to explore Rapture again to learn about like I said the, the 10 year history I think that in many ways that's such a unique world still it's still such a a, a magnificent place to be in 
that it's almost enough actually and and i don't i think in some ways the fact that the the gameplay is very linear and very uh coerced you know you, you are shuffled from one place to the next that kind of aids it in some ways that kind of just says you know go explore this area when you're done go to the next one uh that that you know the gameplay is there to to kind of almost fill in the fill in the bits in between if you if you if you want it to mm-hmm. well see that's that's the thing is i'm not saying there's anything bad about exploring like that is the best thing but the rest like all the filler combats um kind of worthless to me um right. i could have done without it and it ended up detracting from the overall experience and I would have liked to have seen uh, conflict handled differently there's certainly, I, oh sorry, you get you I was going to say I agree with Eddie 100% because I, the whole time I mean I'm, I'm about halfway through Bioshock 2 I've been playing it right now actually and um, the whole time I'm thinking you know, I, I kind of wish this was just a walkthrough tour of Rapture <laughs> I don't really enjoy the gunplay. I don't really enjoy the plasmids this time around. I liked them last time, but this time I'm just kind of not really getting into them as much because primarily all the ones that I picked up have been the same ones that I already had in the first game. And the whole time I've been thinking kind of Silent Hill Shattered Memories, which is a game that basically was just a giant walkthrough museum. You walk around, you pick things up, you listen to them, you read them, and you keep going to the next location. And I would honestly it'd be, you know, right now I'm enjoying looking around, I'm enjoying going to the locales. I think the team did a great job of designing new locations for Rapture that were unique and not just, you know, felt like a rehash of the first game. But I would really love it if Bioshock 3 had no combat whatsoever because then I'd be able to truly enjoy these environments and I'd be able to be creeped out by these creatures instead of just killing them the second they appear. Right. Because, I mean, that was my problem with the first game. A lot of people said they were they found genuine fear in Bioshock. I never did because you had so much power in your hands and your guns and stuff. When Bioshock 1? Um, yeah, even in Bioshock 1. I really was never scared wow. during that game because I knew that I could mow down whatever was in front of me, I think. You see, I can, I can, you know, I, the, I can identify an exact reason why I didn't find Bioshock 2 as scary as Bioshock 1 and that is because I didn't face well as a big daddy facing another big daddy I lost all the all the fear of it um the right. big daddy was such a quick imposing like it, it, it felt like a train coming at you in the first game <laughs> whereas um the, the big sister is more like this ninja character who you know is dashing all over the screen that, that doesn't quite scare me as much as something that is almost unstoppable and pushes you back. You, know, the, you are pushed back. The, the, the camera right. lurches back with you, and it's it's kind of, kind of scary. It kind of reminds you know, for all the powers I have, I'm still this human versus this big thing in a suit. And uh, I, I found the first game very uh, not scary, but certainly tense and and haunting. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the the first game did better. Yeah, did a better job of giving you time to breathe in between, whereas. Mm. Um, the new one is, I don't know, there's more, there's more just general combat going on, and also, it telegraphs everything, like, more than it should. You know exactly when you're going to fight a big daddy, because they won't go near you unless you touch them first, and you know that a big sister is coming after you save the last little sister. I mean, so, if you're not ready it's your own fault whereas in the first game you come through a door and there's a big daddy in the hall and you're just like oh shit now what well, I, 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 I'm not sure I 
totally agree with that. But what I will say is, even if you were prepared for the Big Daddy in the first game, you couldn't ever really be prepared for the Big Daddy because even if you took your time and sort of went, okay, I'm going to approach him now, you couldn't predict whether he was going to turn around suddenly and attack you or not. It, it was just the AI was really, really good for the for the first Big Daddy. Um, I just didn't see that again in the second game. What I what I will say is to to kind of defend Bioshock 2 in, in terms of the combat is that you know a lot of shooters and we've got to remember Bioshock 2 is essentially a shooter like the first game um, they don't do that much with their weapons from game to game and I feel like there was almost more scrutiny on Bioshock 2 because it returns to Rapture because you're in the same environment uh, and because it looks so much like the first game because really you know, right. there isn't much graphical advancement there uh, there's a bit of texture work and a bit of lighting work but really it does look very very similar to the first game and and my my other thing would be to say that um, the thing I, I I thought was really interesting about Bioshock Two was making you wonder whether you were, were a good character or a bad character, you were a good or evil character because uh, there were just certain little touches like you get one moment when I I entered a room and there were a couple of uh, splicers dancing having a romantic dance and you know they seemed quite serene and quite happy with it and then I enter and they're like oh shit got to kill the big daddy and I'm sort of thinking. Well, you know, I wasn't I the guy who intruded on these guys in my big imposing suit and uh, <laughs> terrified the shit out of them rather than the other way around. So it's kind of sort of making me think, well, you know, I would be scared of me if I was coming into a thing. These guys, these guys are kind of reacting naturally mm-hmm. to, to, to me. Uh, if, so do I blame them or do I blame myself? And I, I, it, I don't think it really pushed that far enough, but it did get me thinking about that. And I, was, I, I appreciated it for that. Yeah, I think I give you a lot of credit for for being able to think that way about the game because <laughs> it doesn't present itself well as that I, I don't think you know no. it, in general like it scratches the surface of that but it's not this obvious message that it's trying to give to the player no it, it wasn't obvious there were just a, a few hints you know, I think a few of the things that they say when you're coming the splicers say it's a, it's a bit different to how it is in Bioshock but you, you're quite right they didn't they didn't really nail it, no. Um, I think we probably should move on to another game because we are running out of time. And I think I think it should be that game. Which that game? Oh, that, that game. game. That game. <laughs> that game. <laughs> um, All right. So so you guys had a podcast earlier this week that I was not a part of, and it was about a particular game that I think we should talk about a little further because we hyped it up for a solid year of podcasting. Yes. Uh, we, we did just well, pass a one-year birthday, by the way, in February, and I completely forgot about it, but you're quite right. Like uh, Since the show started, the game that has been on our lips has been Heavy Rain, <laughs> and uh, we ended up having a, a two-hour show on it. And, you know, I, I tried hard to, to kind of push it as not as bad as the other three guests thought it was, but I didn't really want to play too much of Devil's Advocate, and unfortunately they were they were determined to call uh, call out the game for a lot of issues, which I, I, I unfortunately I couldn't just I, I could only sit there and kind of nod my head because for me at least I don't know whether Joe agrees. I'm pretty sure Eddie doesn't that they they were the things they were saying they are kind of true, and I was just sitting there going, well, yeah, I, I maybe I am giving this game a bit of a free ride uh, because I mm. I like what it's trying to do um joe you've you've played for it now eddie obviously you, you played for it for game of node and, and gave it 9.5 in your co-review of jason finale let's go to joe first joe what what were your kind of condensed thoughts on the game you know i listened to the to the podcast earlier today the guys the one you guys did earlier this week and i i, I really I, I enjoyed heavy rain i did i liked it a lot um but i couldn't help but agree with almost everything that you guys said on the podcast because 
there are a lot of flaws in there. And as I'm playing it, I found myself, you know, kind of admitting to myself, yeah, I'm going to look past this when I when I finish this game. I'm going to I'm going to ignore this. I'm going to ignore this this stupid control scheme and I'm going to ignore this this incredible plot hole that doesn't really make much sense and in my opinion uh by the way people if you have not played Heavy Rain you might want to stop listening to the show now because we're probably going to drop some spoilers on yeah. you um but in my opinion I like Jeff said on Sunday or on Monday when the show went up that uh he did not like the uh, the reasoning behind the killer and what made him do what he did and how that made no sense. That's what primarily bothered me when I finished the game. And and as much as you know, I've talked on this show about my love of interactive movies and my love of or my strong like of uh, Indigo Prophecy. I found myself being stuck with these things at the end where they that were getting in the way of me truly enjoying the game like I thought I was going to. And um, Sam and I were talking before the show a little bit about how. You know, I think it. We kind of set ourselves up for this disappointment a little bit. Mm. We we were hyping this. We are as guilty and... as anyone of hyping this game to high heaven because you know yeah. we uh, we were we were not we weren't stupid. We were obviously apprehensive, but at the same time we were genuinely excited at the possibility of uh, right. a game that could actually maybe uh, not necessarily shift the medium forward, but at least start off a, a movement maybe or you know maybe push things in a, in an interesting direction. And we shouldn't have been because, quite frankly, Omicron and Indigo Prophecy weren't really that great. Right. And that's the thing. It's, it's the same guy making them. It's the same team making them. And the, the problem is, it, I compared him to Peter Molyneux before when I was talking to Sanan, that David Cage is a fantastic speaker. And he will stand up there and he will tell you about his game and he will show you his game. And he will completely sell you on what he's trying to do. Right. I sat there for 30 minutes uh, at E3 listening to him talk about uh, the... Uh, the club scene with Madison. With Jeff there as well, uh, actually. Jeff was standing next to me. Yeah, Eddie, I think you were in the same session as us too. You were. Oh, I was. In the I was in the front row. <laughs> well, of course, because you got there earlier. You bastard! Did not save us seats. So we were in the. Session, I didn't know you were coming. This guy. <laughs> sure. Um, David Cage really explained himself very well. He explained what his intention was. He explained what the player would be thinking during these moments. He explained what Madison was thinking during these moments, and he kind of went into how. This one scene, which those who have played the game know that the club scene at the end, kind of important, but not really one of the, the, the biggest turning points in the game. But he went into how this, this seemingly minor scene would have such an impact on the rest of the game, depending on what you did in it. And now that I've played that scene and i played that game, I realized that he was completely exaggerating the impact of every one of these scenes that he was talking right. about. And that kind of makes me feel like we've been barking up the wrong tree for the last year. So the thing was, we were we were planning to have Eddie on the show on Sunday. He, Eddie was going to provide the balance to um, to Jeff and Zan, who uh, I knew before the show were going to be very uh, damning on the game. Unfortunately, something came up for Eddie on Sunday, and he can he can record with us. So uh, Ditsum out of the game machine stepped in. But we, after you know, recording the show and listening back to it, I felt like, you know, I I I don't think it's quite fair because we didn't get into quite for me a lot of the things that Heavy Rain at least raises. As a, as a game that's trying to do something different. And I, and I, I really dispute Jeff's claim on the show that it, it wasn't trying to do something different. I really think it, it, it did try to do something different and maybe it just didn't quite execute it as, as well as it liked. And I was really keen to get, we were really keen to get Eddie on because Eddie, you, were, you had very little bad to say about the game. And one of the things uh, Zan said on, on after our show is that he really wanted to hear from you because he just couldn't understand for him 
where there was any praise to be given for this game. Uh, so the floor is yours, Eddie. Why, why is Heavy Rain worthy of that 9.5 score? Well, um, I think it's very simple. And it's about the way the game makes you feel while you're playing it. I was 100% engrossed from beginning to end. Um, there, I don't know, I don't remember the exact criticisms of it, but because I was primarily focusing on why I was loving it so much. Um, I did think about, yeah, the, the R2 walking mechanic was a little stupid, but, <laughs> um... <laughs> That's, I don't think that's, that's disputable, is it, really? The ultimate mechanic was a bit I of mean, a, a That's flavor. easy to get by. You know what it was? It wasn't explained well. Um, because if you hold R2, your character will walk forward, but you don't, you're not supposed to touch the analog stick until you have to make a turn. It's like you're driving a car in a racing game. <laughs> well, I, I just think as well, actually, that you know there wasn't enough... Uh kind of control of that that walking and and uh, even with you know even if it if you understand the controls i just felt it was very difficult to not break the scene in terms of visuals because i'd end up walking into stuff half the time <laughs> and yeah. I, I like to think that i can handle you know <laughs> a controller fairly well i'm fairly experienced with them and yet i just couldn't ever walk in a in a good uh, convincing way so it was a big it was a big no for me because it broke the immersion but anyway, deadly than the origami killer was every table, desk, or chair that was in the middle of a room in heavy rain because I got stuck on those far more than I did on <laughs> That's that is just one aspect. Yeah, yeah. So I found, so I found the way that the story was put together, uh, and especially the final, the final reveal of the killer, which seemed to be a big point of, um, I don't know hatred for the game. Um, yes. <laughs> I thought that that was done very well, honestly. And I think, especially because I was I was really paying attention to what was going on throughout the game, and I figured out who it was. But I thought there was so much evidence um, and like cleverly interwoven into the story. Um, I guess I'm going to spoil this now. Okay, so, <clears throat> so it was Shelby, and you see Shelby has asthma, and then the kid, you know, the child version of Shelby, breathes funny throughout all his scenes. His right. father's an alcoholic. Shelby happens to keep one bottle of alcohol in an empty top drawer in his desk. Why? Maybe to remind himself. You know, it's... I think there's a psychological basis behind this game in, in a lot of ways that really appealed to me. And, the I thing, mean... The, yeah? Uh, just, just to, to kind of... Because I I don't think, for me I I can really accept like that 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 would be the reasons why you would spot it being Shelby. I think it was like we said on the show it was more transparent than that. It was and uh, this the, the way that the game had been leading you to believe that it was Ethan, um, and the fact that there was absolutely no reason for Shelby to be there. We were never given any mm. backstory for him whatsoever, apart from the fact that he's an ex-cop who is for some reason dot dot dot. In <laughs> looking into this case, and we've never we never get any indication of why. And it's for me, like I said on the show, it was it was really transparent, and I couldn't get into the reveal of it because, like we said on the show, I, I played as Shelby throughout the game. I'd had access to his thoughts, and uh, it didn't make sense. Why was Why didn't his thoughts reveal anything about his right. later intentions? 
not just that, but like we said in the show, some of them contradict him being the killer. Like like I said in the show, he's he's concerned that the rain is getting too high. And this is something Jim like I said in the show, Jim Sterling brought up in his piece. If he was the killer, he'd be thinking, Well, time for that rain to get high so that that kid can die. So you know, um and there were other things, even more glaring things in that one. If you again I'll link in this show notes to the to Jim Sterling's article because it really is when that when I read that I was going, Yeah, some of these I thought of and then some of these I hadn't and looking at him thinking, oh my god, really? <laughs> it's ridiculous that this guy's the killer when you when you know that he thinks this way. Um, but obviously, this is what Zan was saying. Obviously, you were able to get past that. And this is kind of what intrigues me. Like, how? Because you said you'd know there are the big plot holes. Why were you able to forgive the game for them? Um. Like what plot holes are you talking about? Like, 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 like the fact, like I said, like, like Shelby uh, has his problems. Like, um, Ethan with the origami in his hand. Mm-hmm. There's no explanation for his blackouts. There's no explanation for that. Well, um, why do I need an explanation a... for that, really? I mean, I'm not. But but I, I why? Don't, I don't see that I, that I necessarily need that. That's just right, something. But what about the last chase where he's like, uh, "Okay, we finally found a father that is good to his son and that deserves to live. Now I'm going to kill you because you saw my right. face." Well, that see, he's a psycho. <laughs> you know, he's a psychopath. But I think that that's a very simple explanation, isn't it? This is the thing I said on my show. You could you could explain a lot of Shelby by saying he's a psychopath. But the problem is we've had access to his thoughts, and they're not psychopathic thoughts. And I tried to defend it on the show. I said, well, a psychopath can have quite normal thoughts alongside abnormal thoughts. But for us to Absolutely. get no access to abnormal thoughts, well, that's just contrivance, surely. Mm. So it's just. It's, it's changing what should be, you know, like yeah. taking taking the realism out of it to make an effective game. It, it, it's to, it's like like Zan said, and I think it, you know, just again, Jim Sterling said, it's so that you have that moment, which you had, in fairness to you, you had that moment where you went, oh man, it's it shall be, uh, you know, and um, okay, you didn't get it at that actual moment when it's revealed, but you you did get it, and it was a shock, uh, because you've been playing as him. And that, that's the whole thing. And I think that's fine as a concept, but you've got to execute it right. And, and they just didn't. Okay. Well, aside from the plot, though, aside from the plot holes and everything bad you can say about the reveal of the killer, um, the game did emotionally tie you to characters well um, from, from the beginning. Like, especially things like the father and son interactions you you start off and yeah, you're immediately feeling for Ethan and his children um just the the whole family dynamic there how after his son died he was i mean clearly his wife divorced him or whatever they were they weren't living together um he went sort of off the deep end as i would imagine your your 10-year-old son getting killed would do Sure. Um, so he became numbed, like, he, I think he said, or maybe I said, I chose it, it felt like anesthetic, um, during one of the, the psychologist sessions. Um, mm. I mean, I, I thought that that whole opening scene was, was actually brilliant, because it very quickly gave you a lot of information, if you wanted to find it, about Ethan and his family. You know, you right. find out that he's an architect, you find out that they're well off. You find out that the kids are, you know, very happy. They get on. There's a, this is a happy family unit. Uh, everything is going right for this family. Uh, Ethan gets on with his kids really well, 
And I, I like I said on the show, I got this amazing feeling from playing with the kids in the back garden, you know, turning them around and getting this, this giggling laughter. It's, it's as simple as I do this and the kids laugh. It's that kind of simple action reward thing. And it was, it was brilliant. And then, then you go into the next scene and uh, the, you lose the kid in the mall and he dies. And it was so sudden and really very tense. And then, like you say, Eddie, you go into this next scene and everything is just disastrous. And the guys in the show said it, it was too sudden, too contrived. I think the whole point is that it was. That's that. That is how disasters happen. Bad things just happen very quickly. I think one of the biggest things about this game, like one of the biggest strengths and focuses of the game, is emotion and and tension um, throughout pretty much the entire thing. It's like you're you're on this adrenaline rush. Like at least once per per two or three scenes, you have these moments where you're genuinely worried about what's going on on screen and to me that's very important because sometimes I'm playing a game and I just don't care I didn't like I don't care what's going on but in heavy rain I cared what was happening and I was just completely involved and I think the the controls aside from the uh, walking were done very well I think, I don't know, I think Jeff uh, complained about not being able to see what was going on, which I really disagreed with as well, because I found that unlike any other, we can call them quick time events, um, (laughs) prior to this, which um, were generally placed at the bottom of the screen or on the top of the screen, these were placed exactly where your eyes should be focused Absolutely. to see the action that's coming. Right. A punch is coming towards your face. So there's an X button or whatever it is, a, a very high contrast, easily discernible icon on screen on your enemy's fist. So it, to me, I could watch the scene very clearly while still knowing exactly what to do with my controller. And that's something that I hadn't seen in any other game up until this point that uses a an on-screen button prompt type interface to deliver its story. And b- I think because of the way that this game is so... Um, I don't want to use the word cinematic because I hate it, but it's, it's more of a directed experience mm. that this is the way that this game had to be put together maybe you know I, I think that it's it's a very good way to present a game that is directed as heavy rain is um i think i think that action wise and the way that it presented everything i think it was brilliant i think i would love to see more games that do the exact same thing that this one tries to do where it's mostly a storytelling device and there are these action scenes that you you indirectly controlled but you know they're still done in the, in the heavy rain style i think it's great i think they took you know what was solid in indigo prophecy and actually made it good um and I, i'll never fault the game for that um, well this is the thing we said before the, the show isn't it that we it, these are the best qts we've played in the game joe and i we, we agreed on that and i think uh it, that, 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 there's no discussion there yeah. it's just it, it literally it makes qtes you know usable it makes them fun in a way that no other game really has. I think God of War is probably the game that did it best before now, and this blows anything that's ever been in a God of War. Very way. entertaining, uh, I found them. Absolutely. Um, and I think, honestly, in my opinion, the first quarter of Heavy Rain 
it, it gripped me in a way that not many other games have. I think that the uh, the opening mall scene where you lose your son, I've, I don't really think I've panicked during a game as much as I did during that. I felt genuine concern, even though I knew what was going to happen just because it had to. Um, I really felt concerned, and I was really into the, the, the frantic hunt through the mall. I'm just gonna, I just want to interrupt um, you there, just because I want to reiterate something I said on the show last time, which I think it, if you'd missed the show we did on Sunday, and you're listening to this one, because you, or you, for some reason you hadn't finished the game, whatever, I was so disappointed by the, the voice recording in that sequence. Really mm. disappointed by the, the sheer mm. neglect to not think, let's record a few different ways of him saying Jason. Because it's yeah. just, it's clumsy and it really is a very simple thing. We've seen it in Grand Theft Auto 4. You do a couple of recordings. That was, you know, one big long sequence. This is one word. Right. I don't know. But anyway, yes, no, carry on. Know. I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I also wanted to say that I think the, the Madison introduction was one of the most tense things that I've ever done in a game. The, uh, the, the intruder scene where there are people in your house. There was uh, honestly breathtaking the entire thing. Um, and then it kind of fell apart for me a little bit after after all the characters were introduced and we had a little time to play with them. Um, I think that the the whole Ethan storyline, how it basically degraded into a Saw movie, I did not like that. I thought it was it it didn't fit in with the tone that the rest of the game had, and that was kind of my problem with that. I think that um, I think that the promises that David Cage made about how big of an impact each of your decisions made in the game was way out of whack. I think that the you know the small decisions you make like maybe here and there if you talk to this guy it'll change something later on but for the most part like the, the decisions that you kind of expected to have big impacts didn't really have the impact that you would want um and i think that you know the fact that there is only really one way this story ends with you know scott being the killer or shelby being the killer i think that that's um that just goes to show you that this game was not as open as david cage had kind of led you to believe and i think that um, in particular, death is handled incredibly poorly in Heavy Rain. Has anyone, Why? either of you guys, did you lose a character um, during your playthrough? Yes, pleasure? I lost uh, Norman. I'm, I'm curious to know, though, why you think it was handled poorly. Uh, I just don't know. When did you lose him? At the very end. Eddie. Okay. I lost uh, Jaden during the, uh, you had to go to Mad Jack's car lot mm. in the middle of the game. And uh, there was a fight sequence there, and uh, I messed up like three or four of the QTE things. And the way that that scene ended for me, uh, Mad Jack was coming at me with a pipe, and Jaden was on the floor. And then the scene kind of just faded away to black. And I went on with the next scene, and people who played Heavy Rain know that it kind of rotates. You do each character once, in, in you know, four in a row, and then it repeats. And I didn't even know that Jaden had died until his slot in the rotation came up, and he didn't appear. And no character ever made mention of his death. No events in the game really changed. The The outcome still ended up pretty much the same, except that Jaden didn't play a part in it. Everything still came together, is what I'm saying. Um, and no one ever mentioned his name until, I believe, the closing credits, when every character has their epilogue, and there was a small thing on Jaden mentioned. And, I mean, like, the way Cage had explained it, it was basically that you can go through this game and not... You know, and miss entire chunks of everything, and not have this. If you lose this character, the game is completely different from you. You will have you know, this character's death will impact a lot of things during this story. And losing a major character in the middle of the story, I didn't feel that. In the way, I just felt like I was cheated because I didn't get to play Jaden's scenes. 
And it wasn't that I chose to kill Jaden. It was an accident. It was a, I missed maybe three button presses during a ten button press scene. And unfortunately, I must have missed the one or two that really mattered. And I just felt cheated, and I felt that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, what David Cage had kind of told me it was going to be, and therefore it wasn't as fleshed out as I'd hoped it would be. Hmm. See, I hadn't, I didn't lose, well, obviously, I only lost uh, Jaden, and it was only at the end he was fighting Shelby on top of some crazy conveyor thing. Hmm. But I spoke with Jason Finelli from Gamernode, and he lost just about everyone. Um, wow. Yeah, so... Way to go, Jason. I haven't <laughs> I haven't had a chance to play it a second time, which I really want to do. But it sounded to me like that's pr- incredibly different from what I experienced. Um, I also missed scenes. I missed one scene uh, with Madison because I left the doctor's house. So I don't even have any idea what happened there. Um, oh, okay, well, you missed a... a- one of uh, many scenes involving Madison which involved her being sexualized, which was a great mm-hmm. disappointment for me with the game. Uh, she was a, a character who was only there because she was a woman, and it was a real letdown after the... You know, we we especially that opening demo we'd seen of Heavy Rain, this really strong female character, who turns out to be Lauren the prostitute, by the way. Um, you know, <laughs> And uh, she's a pretty two-dimensional character, too. Uh, so, I, I don't know, but... Uh, one, the one thing that really I really wanted to get into in the previous show, which we we didn't get into, because when I asked the question, I asked the guys, so did you have any problems playing as multiple characters because of conflicting agendas, especially in that that moment where you are Madison kissing Ethan, or, or not kissing Ethan? Um, right. They all just said, I don't care at this point. So I was kind of like going, yeah, we can't really explore the explore the design and theory of this of this sequence. But for you, Eddie, obviously you were there and you were invested in the characters like I was. Um, my my thought process in that was I'm playing as as Madison, uh, I I'm trying to think as Madison. Madison, uh, let's say that she makes a mistake and, and decides to make a move, but she knows ultimately that this is a bad idea, because she why would you from you know disguise in a terrible place? You wouldn't get wouldn't you wouldn't see this through at some point. You would say no, back away. But if I was playing as Ethan in that sequence. Right, I, and like I said in the show, this is me really trying to think as the characters. I would be all over the place at this point, and I would be looking for solace from wherever I could get it. And I would mm. think I would, I, w- I would kiss her. Now, uh, maybe that's me not thinking right as the characters, but at least I'm thinking and trying to invest in them. And what's happened there is there's been this conflict of agendas. And for me, this is my biggest problem with the game. I didn't like playing as multiple characters. I found it very hard to attach to these characters because at some points their their agendas crossed, their paths crossed, and right. one person would want one thing, another part, character would want another thing, and those things would cause kind of a, a point where I have to stop thinking as another character. I have to disregard another character mm-hmm. and, and forget what he wants. Um, did, did you have any of that, or is, it just, is that just me overthinking it? Um, well... For me, I really enjoy playing as multiple characters. I actually used to play, here we go, nerd alert, I used to play tabletop RPGs where I had to basically embody multiple characters in the same nerd. quest. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to me, this was very much a role-playing game. Maybe not the genre, but by definition, you're playing the roles of multiple characters. And when it came time to make decisions whichever character I was controlling was basically the one that I was embodying at that moment. So I just would disregard, like you said, I would disregard the other person's thoughts because at that point I'm not that character. 
Doesn't that make you feel more like a director than a player? Because uh, for me, like you are saying, well, what do I? I spent, you know, four hours playing as Ethan. Ethan is the main character. Let's face it, of this game. And then this really crucial decision you're playing as Madison, who is not maybe the fourth most important character in the game. You know, <laughs> uh, I think it's fair. So the player characters is she. It, she probably is the least important of the player. Yeah, characters. she's not very important. So you probably you, and you you certainly get the le- the, le- the least playtime as her. You play more as Jaden as as Shelby and e- as Ethan than as her. Um, so I, I'm almost less attached to her, and yet this crucial decision, which I know, by the way, this is something I, I wrote about in my blog, I know if I kiss her, sorry, if I, if I kiss him as, as Madison in this sequence, I'm going to get the happy ending where they're all happily ever after families and whatever, if, if they all get through it. And if I don't, then they're not going to end up together because, again, kind of transparency in, in the plot. Um, so I've got all these conflicting ideas around this one thing, and... Um, Jared Newman, who, we hadn't, who, we've, who we've had on the show before, said this is good because it challenges you to think about what you're doing. I say, yeah, well, a lot of things challenge you to think about what you're doing if they're really clumsily designed and not thought out. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's where I'm coming from. I, I think it... I understand that it's to help give, you know, the whole death thing and, and permanence and all that, but for me, uh, you have to keep these characters entirely separate if you want to promote attachment to them. Otherwise... You are asking yourself, which character do I care about more? Right. Well, I think in response to to the thought of uh, to, to considering whether you're actually playing a game or directing it, I this is where I say that I don't call this a game, and that I've taken issue with the term video game for a long time. Um, so. I'm not necessarily as attached to the idea of playing a game versus directing the game. I'm going to do whatever happens and see how it unfolds. I, I'm more into the revelation of the plot um, in the end, whichever way it turns out. And I could see in that particular scene that you bring up either way actually making sense. It's just a matter of which ends up happening based on what I'm doing and either one is fine with me like to to accept this advance as Ethan um, maybe it doesn't make sense because he's on a, a single-minded mission to get his son and this is a, a time waster as the rain you know piles up but maybe like you said maybe he is so messed up that he just needs some sort of human connection to, you know, remind him that that he's actually living, you know, that he's he's not in this downward spiral to to his own doom and the doom of his child, you know, he needs to something to bring him back up. So either way, you have valid thought processes uh behind this character. But then you're kind of playing as both characters at that point, which you're not actually right. doing. Don't you, don't you see that kind of lends itself more to directorial? You're, you're kind of saying, um, well, actually, I am. I'm going. The, the story that makes sense is the one where she kisses him and he responds. That, that, that even though part of it's not in your control, you're still kind of crafting the story to go down a route you want it to. Whereas, really, if you are playing as a character, I'm not trying to say play. I'm talking not you know not play versus director. Talking about a char- one character, uh, whether it's a drummer or not. There's a difference, surely. You you only the, you. 
I don't know how to quite put it, but uh, there is a difference between just saying, well, Ethan would, and saying having the decision of whether Ethan would or not. Did you I not have to make a example. decision with Ethan in that scene? No, I had. To, I was Madison only. It's, uh, oh, my, oh, I had to actually kiss her as Ethan. Well, I, I had to kiss. I had to kiss him as Madison. So there you go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Bizarre. Um, well, I guess that that sort of I don't know shows that there's a little bit of variance at least. Mm. I see what you're saying, though, Sanand, because the other example you guys brought up on the other show was uh, the, the Jaden releasing Ethan mm, example. I had real problems with um, that scene. I, I had a problem with a lot of things, too. Like, I, I had the same thing as you, where I was supposed to be Madison kissing Ethan, and I believe this is right after he chopped his finger yeah. off, or, or one of those trials. And the whole time I'm thinking, what did she do? Why? Like, when the, the prompt even came up that I could kiss him at this point in time, like, it just blew my mind that, why would this even be an option here? This doesn't make any sense at all these characters are spent about an hour and a half together mm. ever there's no real connection here he hasn't done anything towards her that would even make her like him at all it makes no sense whatsoever it felt like a, a, a typical movie romance it was a bit forced. And it really bothered me. it was a bit forced no it it, it was it bothered me and I, I of course i did it because i'm the director and i wanted to as you said see what would happen from it just like when I was Jaden, I released Ethan because that was the thing that I needed to do to continue the plot the way I kind of wanted it to go. That, that's the problem, but, isn't it? Because you know as Ethan that you need to find your kid and the only way to do it is is right. by getting out. But as Jaden, well, honestly, you really wouldn't release him at that point. No. And if Jaden hadn't died on me immediately after that, then I probably would have seen some consequences for that. When did Jaden have an opportunity? When did Jaden have Ethan in his custody? I see. We got. You've played a completely different game to us. <laughs> Maybe your game was really yeah. good because I want to play your confusing. game, Eddie. There's a there's a point where um, Ethan is caught, uh, and Jaden has the opportunity to release him. Is uh, that after they're in? Is that after the finger scene also, where Madison goes to him? I'm not sure um, where when exactly it is, but the whole point is you. Uh, Ethan is in an interview room, right. uh, and they're supposed to be interviewing him, and and. Jaden, at this point, has been harboring suspicions that Ethan is not the killer. The problem is, is that if this guy's an FBI agent, uh, you wouldn't release a guy, even if you thought that he wasn't the killer. It's just, it's clumsy writing. But even if you can ignore the clumsy writing, you go, well, I'm going to still try and think of uh, Jaden as, you know, playing as Jaden. Like, you don't get the choice to... (laughs) It's just this conflict of interest, because you know as Ethan you need to get out, but as Jaden, you want him to stay because he should stay. And yet, the game pushes you down one path anyway and removes the conflict, I guess you could argue. But the whole point is that if you had given me the choice, I'm thinking it's two different people in that situation. Hmm. Mm. I need to play more of your Heavy Rain to uh. to understand all arguments, I think. <laughs> I really wanted to play it twice. The, the, the only other dichotomy I, I found is that you say it's not to be classified as a game, but what about these quick-time events? You, you, frankly, those are things you are winning. Those are win-or-lose situations, always. The only one that isn't is the very beginning of the game, and even that one really is a win-or-lose situation. I, I decided to lose the, the the mock sword fight to my kid because I thought that's what a good dad would good dad would do. But uh, if you actually want to get the trophy, the PlayStation trophy for that chapter, you have to win the fight along with everything else in the chapter, which you have to win. So, uh, yeah, I it may have been saying it's an interactive drama but at the same time underneath this interactive interactive drama was a was a game you could win was the perfect ending to get 
Well, I lost that first fight also, but for the for the rest of them, to me, I don't know. Maybe it's just a, a difference in the way I'm looking at it. Is I didn't care if I won or lost. You know, it wasn't like. But the game is telling I, you that you are supposed. To, it's giving you a skill-based challenge to win. It's not whether you. I, I understand that you were able to distance yourself, but the game is that. That's that's good for you. I wish I could think that way. But the game is presenting you a, something that is a, based on skill. That is definitely not about choice. It's about winning or losing that sequence. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, Joe, I know you have to go. Yes, I have. So, do you want to give us your closing thoughts before you go? Yeah, I uh, I enjoyed Heavy Rain, and um, I think that had a. Uh... See, I, <laughs> again, I tried to replay it immediately after, and I felt like I was rewatching the same movie the same day, and I couldn't do it. I actually stopped it, said I won't enjoy it this time. Um, I'm hoping that I'll find that as I play Heavy Rain the second time, making drastically different decisions will affect my playthrough. But the vast amount of similarities that I've seen with everyone I've talked to, except Eddie, <laughs> would lead me to believe that this game was a bit different than the one that I had in my head and of course that is my fault for thinking like that like it is with everyone who overhypes something before it comes out but um, in the end what I'm going to take away from Heavy Rain is that it was a really interesting game a very different game a game that I'm very very happy that I played and a game that I did enjoy but we are still searching for that other Heavy Rain that we had been talking about for the past year I'm completely on board with your sentiment I mean this is I better clear that the whole matter just well, good joke here. I, I enjoyed it too. I thought it was a good game, but it, it had big, big problems, and it could have been a lot better for me. And that about does it for this week's edition of Big Red Potion Co-op Mode. If you liked the wise words of Mr. Eddie Inzato, you can check him out at GamerNode.com, and you can check out Eddie and Sanan's further explanation of Heavy Rain on part two of this co-op mode, which also went up today. Be sure to check us out next Monday when Big Red Potion returns with an indie game focused special that I honestly think you guys are really going to love. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 